What does literature sound like? What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast. Stories about how literature sounds. My name is Catherine McLeod, and each month I'll be bringing you different stories of Canadian literary history and our contemporary responses to it, created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada. My name is Kate Moffat. And I'm Miranda Eastwood. And this month, we're stepping in to introduce the newest episode of the Spoken Web podcast. What does data sound like? This is the question at the heart of this month's episode, asked by producer Chelsea Mia. In spring 2021, Chelsea and her fellow Spoken Web collaborator Sean Lauk produced Drum Codes Part 1, The Language of Drums which explored the politics and poetry of talking drums. For hundreds of years, West African cultures have used drums to send messages across great distances. In part two, Sounds of Data, Chelsea continues the story begun in part one, this time exploring the topic of sonic data by way of three interviews. We'll hear from Tunde Adegbola, a research scientist who is also the founder of the African Languages Technology Initiative, Juana Avasilikoy, sound artist and poet, and finally, Matt Russo, a sonification expert who works with NASA. This episode delves into their research and creative practices working with sonic data. It tackles everything, from the practical limits of audio technologies for tonal languages, to the many meanings of the word track when working with surveillance and sound, to what deep space sounds like if each new planet is a data point. Chelsea and her guests consider what it means to listen to data, to sit with the relationship between a data set and its sonic representations, and the future of both audio technologies and audio data. Here is Episode 3 of Season 4 of the Spoken Web Podcast, Drum Codes Part 2, Sounds of Data. Hi, I'm Chelsea Mia. Last season, my colleague Sean Lauk and I delved into the poetry and politics of the talking drum. For centuries, West African cultures have used drums to transmit messages across long distances. People don't see this kind of literacy as equally as important as, you know, uh, writing literacy or reading literacy. But it is a kind of literacy. There are probably fewer people today who know how to read or listen to the drum as they were in the past. But I'm hoping that the medium of technology keep them relevant and important for the next generation. Drum signals are an early example of a wireless audio transmission and a reminder that audio technology and audio data come in many forms. Our story on the talking drum inspired this follow-up episode in which we'll revisit and explore the sounds of data. We'll hear from sound artist and poet Juana Avasili-Kyoe and sonification expert Matt Rousseau about how they engage with sonic data in their research and creative practices. And we'll think through that question, what does data sound like? But first, we'll learn more about decoding the language of talking drums and how this traditional practice was also a tool for compressing and transmitting knowledge. 
I believe that every language given to humans by nature, no matter how few the people who speak them are, the fact that some human beings have evolved a means to communicate complex ideas through that system means there's something fundamentally powerful about that medium. Tunde Adegbola is the founder of the African Languages Technology Initiative, or Alt-I, an organization that is working to address the language bias in computing culture. Tunde is also a research scientist who studies communication systems both ancient and modern. I work in human language technology with emphasis on speech technologies, uh, looking particularly at the peculiarities of uh, tone languages and um, the adjustments that are needed for tone languages to take advantage of such speech technologies as speech synthesis, speech recognition, and other similar technologies. Also, looking at the implications of speech surrogacy, which is the use of uh, devices other than the human speech operators, such as drums, whistles, and such, to communicate. Tunde has always loved to tinker with technology, whether it's repairing musical instruments, which he collects as a hobby, or writing lines of code. Before he turned his attention to the talking drum, he earned degrees in linguistics and computer science. And learning how to program, he became acutely aware of how technological systems were heavily biased towards English speakers, even at the level of computer code. And that even goes beyond Africa. I mean, the, the whole world uh, looks at computer code as an English-based thing. Well, not just even English, American English. I, I remember many years ago, I, I was at an international conference and we were talking about technology and labor. And the young man who presented was some young graduate from some university from England. And he says the first problem about technology and labor is the spelling of labor because <laughs> the American spelling of labor does not include the U. And growing up as a computer programmer, I know the number of times that I had syntax error because I spelled my color with O-U rather than with just L-O-R. So you find all these kind of effects. Tunde explains how he's long felt that in order to build a more just and participatory society, we need to find a way to make technology more accessible, particularly to local communities. For that, better support for local languages is crucial. This is especially true in West Africa, one of the most language-diverse regions in the world. We say that the last six inches of the digital divide can only be breached by use of the language that the user finds most appropriate, the preferred language of the user. I never had the illusion, like many of my uh, contemporaries had, that the future of Africa, the future of Nigeria, the future of Yoruba land depended on ability to speak English like the English. I knew that language is a system of symbols used to describe the realities of a given culture. And for every culture, 
language evolves to explain and describe that culture. More often than not, when you transfer technology, people sometimes inadvertently transfer the problems that were raised by the foreign culture and reenact that problem locally in order to justify the technology that they uh, are transferring. The choice of language has affected the capacity for industrial breakthrough. We have moved from an industrial age into an information age. And language is the foundational resource of information. Now, if language played so much a role in the industrial age, how much more a role will language play in the information age? A language is a living organism. Whatever you feed the language with is what the language grows with. So if at the moment our local languages do not seem to express science and technology very well, it is because we have not fed them with the kind of nutrition that's made them grow to accommodate such ideas. Alt-I, the African Language Technology Initiative, is working to change that. Tunde founded the organization back in 2002 with the goal of diversifying and decolonizing computer culture. Since then, he and his team developed the first Yoruba keyboard. Alt-I is also partnering with companies like Microsoft to improve speech recognition in tonal languages. So what can modern computing learn from a centuries-old communication device like the talking drum? Looking at the talking drum as a child, it was presented to me only as a plaything, as something for, for entertainment. But as I grew older, my interest in human language technology was developing. And I kept looking very closely at issues of processing sound, particularly speech. So it was then it dawned on me that the talking drum removes the consonants and the vowels in speech, and yet Yoruba is still, it can still be understood. And whilst I was studying, I noticed that it is not peculiar to Yoruba language because Semitic languages were written without vowels, which means there is some level of redundancy in language. And when I got exposed to information theory, and I saw the, the fact that we can actually quantify the redundancy in language. I got excited. And that was when I started giving attention to the talking drums. The phenomenon that Tunde is describing, you've probably encountered it yourself. Have you ever tried to read a sentence without vowels? Chances are your brain can still make sense of it, even without the missing letters. That extra information is redundant. Removing redundant information is how information compression technology works. Think of a JPEG. JPEGs store all colors as some combination of red, green, and blue. It's still a lot of choice. Those three colors come in 256 shades that can be combined in over 16 million ways. Still, by reducing the entire spectrum of color down to those primary three, you can cut out a lot of excess detail. 
Tunde speculated that the talking drum was like a compression tool for speech. The drum player strips away everything except for the pitch so that words can be communicated with just two or three distinct strikes of the drum combined in different ways. I'd done all the mathematics involved. I'd looked at the entropy of talking drum and all that, and I felt there was something very, very fundamentally of scientific advantage here that we can use in technology. As Tunde saw it, cracking the code of the talking drum was not just a curiosity, but a question of scientific value. So he took the unusual step of approaching a guild of drum masters and asking them to take him on as an apprentice. In Yoruba culture, if you belong to the guild of drummers, you had a name that signifies that. When I elected to learn to play the talking drums, the name they gave me was Ayon Yojuno. That is, this Ayon is going beyond his calling. What does he want? What is his interest in our tradition? That was the name I was given. That tells you how strange what I was doing was. But I was clear about what I was looking for. For me, it was such an interesting thing to get into looking at the Yoruba talking drum from a purely scientific, technological point of view. So I was able to overlook all the uh, distractions and got to find out exactly how they were able to communicate using the drums based solely on tones with the introduction of hints at vowels or consonants once in a while to remove ambiguity. Did you find that the talking drum was easier to learn because you had that uh, theoretical or scientific background? Oh, it was, it, it was a lot easier to learn from me. In fact, my teachers marveled sometimes because I was able to extrapolate some of their ideas. I was able to take things further. There is a Yoruba saying, Adagbakolu, omelelonshoku. The closest that that will be in English will be, he who learns to play the violin at an old age should be contented with playing the second fiddle for the rest of his life. So, so I had these kind of disadvantages learning the talking drum at an old age. I wasn't an expert, but I have a good understanding of the theory. And I was able to ex- extend the theory. I was able to develop it formally. I must have written the first formal paper on uh, talking drums, probably the second. And this made it possible for me to look deeper into the phenomenon and see things that others didn't see. So what makes it possible to translate a tonal language like Yoruba into music? In other words, how does a talking drum speak? The easiest way to to explain this to a person that doesn't speak the tone language is that if I hum a tune, for example, you will be able to relate the words to that tune. Now, the interesting thing with tone languages is that the tune was not created for the words. In the case of tone languages, the tune came with the words. The tune came natively, innately with the words. So it's like every sentence you make comes with its own tune. 
And if you produce that tune, uh, people will be able to relate what the tunes you are making, the melody you present to the words that accompany them. Tunde stresses that drum code is not equivalent to binary computer code. There is a poetry and ambiguity in talking drum songs that just doesn't exist in algorithms. What you hear in a song depends on the context, so that the songs themselves are possible to interpret in different ways. That means that talking drums are not just tools for transmitting information. The songs themselves are reservoirs of knowledge. There are a lot of ritual significance of a, a talking drum. So in traditional Yoruba communities, every Orisha, the Orisha, is like the center of certain knowledge system. Every Orisha has its own unique drum ensemble, has its own unique um, genre of poetic statements, which was the way, which is the basis of the knowledge system. Everything to be known within the system is put into orature and is learned by memorization and produced by recitation. And the talking drum also engages in this recitation. So the talking drum is also seen as one of the vital elements of propagating knowledge between and within generations in Yoruba traditional societies. It's fascinating because, as you point out, if you have to remember everything, if you have to pass on this cultural knowledge, you've got to be able to compress it. It makes me think of other things like the MP3, which, of course, transformed music. Yeah, I mean, the maxim, there's nothing new under the heavens, is very true. But we need to engage it to really understand what it means. I see great potentials for telecommunications. I see great potentials for speech technologies. But very, very few of my colleagues see some of these things I see. Hmm. And what are some of the potentials that you see? Okay, for example, when you make a phone call and you speak Yoruba, you are transmitting the consonants, you are transmitting the vowels, you are transmitting the tones. The consonants are characterized by some clouds of frequencies. The vowels are characterized by two or three formant frequencies. The tone is characterized only by one fundamental frequency. So if the talking drum is able to discard the consonants, discard the vowels, and just communicate with just the tone, which is just one fundamental frequency, which is a low frequency, a lot easier to deal with, it means, therefore, we can develop a telephone system that uses lots, lot less bandwidth. And we've demonstrated all, all that theoretically. But because the technology, the, the business around technology may not see the point here in devoting research to some small community of speakers of a particular language, we have not seen some of these developments. There's a lot of interesting phenomena in the world, some that have even been forgotten, but that we are lucky that we still have the global 
intellectual community should not overlook the great element of knowledge that's embedded in some of these traditional practices. It started very much with the voice and uh, finding ways of doubling, tripling, multiplying the voice, manipulating the voice. Um, And then I got more and more intrigued with finding ways of making other types of sound that are beyond my body, you know, uh, or my body through a machine. Juana Avasakioe is a sound artist and poet. In our conversation, she reflects on her creative practice and how our sonic experience is mediated by audio devices and the encoding, transmission, and transformation of the audio trace. Her latest poetry collection is titled 8-Track. When I first started, pretty much all the works I made involved the voice to some degree and involved always involved some kind of text to some, some kind of enunciation to some degree the voice is a score the voice is a scar the voice is a scree the voice is a radical the voice is a scream the voice is a skew the voice is autonomous sacred in more recent years i also made works that don't involve the voice at all. And so that's been a, an interesting development for me that I didn't necessarily foresee um, at, the, at the beginning and, um, or earlier on. I mean, not that I knew where it was going or not that I know where it's going now, but it's a development that I'm interested in pursuing most recently, though this piece hasn't played in public yet, but it's been made. Um, I've also move beyond stereo. And so I've made a piece, um, an octophonic piece. Uh, It's sort of structured for a a circle of eight speakers. And as a listener, you would be kind of in the middle of the circle. Um, So it's a a multi-channel piece, which actually has no voice in it, no no, uh, text. There is there is uh, some breath, but that's as close as we get um, <laughs> to the voice. It's all it's all sounds I made based on uh, a graphic score actually that I drew. Working on that is uh, was very, you know, kind of blew my mind. <laughs> like it's it's a very different way of sort of thinking and and working. Like I really learned a lot more about how sound 
moves in space depending on, well, not only on the space, but on the type of sound it is because it moves differently because of the physical wave of the sound, the sound wave. Uh, it moves differently through space. was also fascinated well what it made me also think is how you know when we're listening to um well like like i am right now i'm wearing these headphones and so i have a sort of two sound sources but actually our bodies have 360 degree we're listening to things in a surround sound type of situation but when we're uh you know we're listening to like music on the stereo or we're in a concert situation or we're, you know, we've got our headphones from the computer. It's now stereo. It's in, it's like a two source thing. So it's interesting because, you know, it's actually, it's a paring down of the natural ways that we actually hear, <laughs> which I never thought about it in that way before. One of the things I sort of made me think about as I was working on this the word surveillance comes from to watch or oversee. However, your work 8-track reminds us that surveillance is not just restricted to the visual field. What does it mean to understand surveillance as what you call an acoustic space of our trailing? How do these sounds of data and surveillance reverberate throughout your work? Oh, well, I explored the different meanings of track. So having all those different meanings in one, in one object, in one place, that's a kind of you know, following the data, sort of, but also like m making it present all at once, because normally those meanings are in very different contexts and they don't, they don't coincide. I mean, if we're listening to a soundtrack, uh, we don't think of animal footprints, for example. And so there's a kind of bringing together of this different data, I guess there's, there's something to it there. Um, even just at that level of the meanings of the word track. I tend to prefer to work with electronics or analog devices or even actual objects uh, rather than software. So because these devices are objects, they implicate my body uh, because they require physical handling and manipulation. And so they help to create a, maybe a kind of hyper-presence of sound, but also a, an in-between space between the organic and the mechanical or the body and the machine. I'm trying to draw attention to the bodies and the devices through which surveillance happens that have their own presences, that create their own sounds, <laughs> that, you know, take up their own spaces. And so it's really just attending to them as the bodies and the devices through which. So it's not so much what are they surveying, but what are they as they are surveying? That was often in some of the works in ATRAC, that was the focus. It was on, you know, w watching or listening to those who would be watching or listening to others. And so it's turning the camera or the mic back onto the actors. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of your piece, a uh, study in portraiture. 
I had a chance to see you perform it at Spoken Web Symposium last spring. And I remember when you took to the stage, you said a few words introducing yourself. And then this hush fell over the room. And the first thing you did was take out a camera and take pictures of us, of the audience. And the click of the camera shutter became incorporated into the loop as part of your performance. It was the great era of seeing. It was forgetting where to look or how. It was an era of new form of oligarchy. It is the era of a new form of oligarchy. It was the great era of seeing. It was forgetting where to look or how. A moment and then another moment and then it is gone. It was the great era of seeing. It was forgetting where to look or how. A moment and then another moment and then it is gone. It was the great era of seeing. It was forgetting where to look or how. A moment and then another moment and then it is gone. It was the great era of seeing. It was forgetting where to look or how. A moment and then another moment and then it is gone. Yeah, so I guess... um. Yeah, although uh, I just want to note that I don't keep those pictures. Um, I do erase them. <laughs> so um, I think it's um, it's part of giving material presence to the um, the devices that are used, and in a sense, by by attending to their objecthood or their oral or physical existence, um, I'm trying to to make visible the tangible, audible aspects of sounding, surveying, tracking uh, that have been made more invisible by digital and virtual technologies. So it's a way of, like, by actually having a physical camera present, for example, you know, you can't not see it. <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's a material object that you're faced with. And so it's hard to, you know, ignore it then. I think because we can very easily ignore um, all these ways that we're being monitored and surveyed because they're actually kind of invisible in our day-to-day -day lives. So much of our research here at The Spoken Web centers on sound archives. So can you talk a bit about your own work on archival sound? What kind of research went into the making of 8-Track? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, if I'm going to speak about 8-Track... I think it was the fruit of various types of archival research that related to sound went into the book. So for example, some of the works are based on transcripts of audio material. For instance, drone operators is distilled from a transcript of the communication between the principal actors in a drone strike, a drone attack. Also in the performance uh, work, I also use archival sounds of drones and soldiers, chatter, while another piece called On Origins is inspired by interview transcripts between asylum seekers and immigration officials who use an interview procedure called LADO, uh, Language Analysis for the Determination of Origin. But also the audio work or bonus track in the book, 8 over 2, uses archival sounds that relate to various forms of tracking or scanning, uh, i.e. the kind of sonic debris created by these means, such as uh, sonar and biosonar, radio, morse, radar, scanners, hard monitors, and surveillance. It also transposes the functioning of the old 8-track tape technology, in which two tracks would play at the same time to create stereo, 
uh, switching between sort of four programs, which were maximum, uh, in an endless loop. So 8 over 2 became a kind of sort of meta track or virtual A track that traces this sonic flotsam of uh, tracking in four programs. Uh, but also, I would say that all these works and others in the book um, blur the boundaries between archive and invention. So, for example, um, sometimes I use the characteristics or topographies of the document or the documentary to create fictions. And they also often attend to the physicality and materiality of sound in these various situations, trying to find means of rendering this materiality through words and forms. The subject, for the most part, sits. Now and then the subject stands, loosens the shoulders, takes a few turns about the room, sits back down on the console. Hands need to be kept busy, Pupils reflecting the convex white light of data. The subject keeps vigil over deviation, watches over the dead to be. It is a laborious becoming, always followed by rapid firing. That clip you just heard was from the piece Drone Operators. So Juana, in pieces like this, I'm really interested in how you're subverting and troubling this dynamic between the agents and subjects of data surveillance. Yeah, I mean, with that piece in particular, I was really, I, I really wanted to bring it back to the body and the physicality of the body and what the body goes through in this situation that is a very disembodied situation because, you know, the effects of the drone operators are at a very large time remove and geographical remove from the person. And yet their body is very much involved in the act of it. So through the research I did to find out more about it, I discovered, you know, the conditions of such work you know, they work in 12-hour shifts, I mean, which is a long shift. There's a lot of nothing. Like, there's a lot of watching of nothing. So there's a lot of sort of very, very slow uh, time where, you know, what, what happens to the body in that kind of time? And then it goes from that extraordinarily uh, kind of lack of input to a, a intense, very intense time of, okay, now we're going to kill people. You know, so, so that's a, those are very, very extreme things. And so um, that was my way of bringing this very disembodied situation back to the body that makes it happen. Because ultimately, not only are there bodies involved in making it happen, but it has effect on other bodies. <laughs> 
And this feels like a powerful act. Often we think of collecting and processing data as something carried out by machines or algorithms. So this is a way of turning our attention back to those human actors. I mean, yes, there are algorithms and machines involved in the processing of it, absolutely. But the, the actual outcomes uh, or impact or actions that happen uh, are made by people, you know, onto other people. I mean, that's the result. And so, um, yeah, it's true. I feel like it's important to, uh, you know, return the responsibility. I feel like through the machine, the device or the algorithm, the responsibility gets lost. It's like, well, it's a machine doing it, so it's no one's responsible. But that's not true. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it is true. Um, and so, to me, it's about well, taking responsibility for and uh, returning the responsibility perhaps to those who are implicated, uh, which are, you know, most of us are implicated to some degree or other. I'm not, I'm not outside of it. I'm in it too, as, as we all are. In time, we were consigned to history and its many versions. In utterance, we wanted telling. Daily, we reminded ourselves that we didn't matter. And daily struggled to be the reverse. In the last of these dialogues on sound and data, we'll be turning from human surveillance to the surveillance of the stars and planets. Most of us are familiar with visualizations like graphs and charts. Sonifications are the audio equivalent, a technique of translating quantitative data into sonic pictures. Compared to visualizations, sonification is a relatively new field, and at the same time, it has a longer history. You could say people like Pythagoras and then later Kepler, um, what they were doing was a, a form of sonification. Um, they were looking for mathematical patterns in the motions of the planets and trying to associate them with musical patterns and musical harmonies. So in a way that is taking something physical in nature, some data of the motion of planets and trying to connect it to musical pitches and rhythms. This is Matt Russo. He's an astrophysicist that works with NASA to create sonifications of the universe. This one's called 5,000 exoplanets. Each note you hear signifies the discovery of a new planet. Higher notes are for planets with faster, tighter orbits, while lower notes signify a longer, slower circuit. When I first got really excited about music, I was into to grunge, like bands like Nirvana and then Green Day. Uh, I was nearing the end of my postdoc in astrophysics, and I had a band going at the same time. And for about 10 years, I was kind of conflicted between these two paths. And I, I, 
I thought I had to pick one and I really couldn't see a future in either for myself. I really wanted to do both in some form. And at the perfect time, um, the Trappist One solar system was discovered, which is the most musical solar system ever found. And so I teamed up with another astrophysicist and my best friend, who's a musician in the band I was in, and we converted that solar system into music. And from there, it just took off. So for you, what brings these fields together? How does music exist in conversation with the planets and the stars? I think one of the reasons why the connection works so well between music and astronomy is that uh, astronomy is full of cycles and patterns. So from the, uh, the earliest astronomy of our, our ancient ancestors, astronomy to them was the cycles of the moon and the sun and the stars. And they, these are all fixed repeating patterns that interact with each other. And music is, is about the same thing in a way. It's cycles happening at, at different frequencies with different amplitudes. And so connecting the two is actually very straightforward in some cases. In, in some cases, you can literally take a signal you're measuring, maybe it's a light signal, and just interpret it as sound. Just plug in that signal to speakers and you can hear that information and extract value from that data through sound. We might be more familiar with visual representations of data, like pie charts and bar graphs, but in fact, sonifications are more common than you might think. The modern world is full of auditory cues or ear cons. Think of the buzz of a phone notification, the beep of your microwave, or a referee whistle in a sports game. If you stop to listen, sonic data is all around us. Our ears are good at picking up signals amongst noise. That's one of the advantages. You're, you're doing it all the time, whether you realize it or not. There's always all kinds of background noise going on. Even when you're, you're at a party and there's people talking all around you, um, our ears are really good at focusing on one, one source, one person's voice, and following that stream. So I know there's a number of researchers studying that right now, trying to see if, if using sound to detect things like, um, like planets, the signatures of planets in the light curves of stars, they're trying to find out if that could be more effective than, than using sight. Right. I think we've all had that experience of being at a crowded party, and no matter how noisy it is, if someone says your name across the room, you will immediately pick it up. Like you have like several people in your head all listening and waiting for different sounds to happen. And as soon as they happen, they, they take over control. As Matt explains, the way we process sound is also unique because of our ability to integrate sonic information into the world around us. So one of the simplest and oldest examples of sonification is the Geiger counter. So it, it makes a sound every time it detects a, a certain particle, a certain particle of radiation coming through. One of the advantages of using sound for monitoring tasks like that is that you can use your eyes for other things. You can be watching where you're going, monitoring something with, with your eyes, and at the same time, your ears are always open. You have no ear lids, so they're always open, ready to hear things to alert you to, um, to things going on around you. Still, there are plenty of sounds we can't hear. Human hearing ranges between 20 and 20,000 hertz. By comparison, a cat can detect sounds at frequencies three times higher than that of their owners. That sixth sense that is sometimes credited to our pets? Is your cat fixated on a spot on the wall because she's seeing a ghost or hearing something we can't? A dripping pipe or a scurrying rat? 
The world is noisy with sounds just outside of our perception. The sound of insects, the sound of cells dividing, a branch of sonification called sonocytology. Even the sun has a sound. The low humming pulse you hear, it's the sound of the sun's radiation. So we've talked a bit about the ways that we're very good at hearing. What about some of the limitations? Yeah, our ears are extremely sensitive to changes in timings. So that includes rhythms. If you're hearing a regular rhythm and all of a sudden one beat is a little bit late, our ears are very detecting that deviation from a regular rhythm. And uh, rhythms happening at much higher frequencies our ears hear them as musical pitches. So in the same sense, our ears are very good at hearing slight changes in the frequency of tones. Um, They're not as sensitive at changes in volume. So usually in a sonification, if you really want a high resolution translation, you'll usually use pitch to represent the most important thing that's changing in the data because we just can't differentiate uh, volume as well. And then spatialization, we only have two ears, so we have even less spatial resolution. We can't pinpoint things down to the millimeter or the centimeter. It's much more broad than that. Yeah, that's interesting. And it makes me think about how with visualizations, we're better at reading a bar graph than a pie graph, for example. In a similar way, are certain sonification models going to be more or less effective? Yeah, certain sonifications are more or less effective, but... The ongoing problem in sonification is no one can decide what those are <laughs> because uh, it just seems like the parameter space is is just enormous. The types of data, the types of patterns you're trying to communicate and the possible ways to communicate it through sound. So usually the, the safest thing is to sonify data that's already happening in time. So all of the sounds in the universe that are happening outside of our hearing range, we can take that information and speed it up. and and then use the pitch of the notes to communicate uh, a quantity rising or falling. That seems to be the most intuitive and most straightforward. And that's related to the other challenge of sonification. There's always some kind of legend or some kind of mapping. And you have to communicate that to your listeners for them to understand the content of the sonification. And so uh, usually you wanna reduce the cognitive load by making that mapping as simple and intuitive as possible if you want them to kind of get what's going on right away so they can access the information in the sonification. And even though sonification has these drawbacks, it also has some unique advantages. As you've pointed out, what about the emotional dynamic of sound? Do we, in a sense, feel it on a deeper level? I think that's actually the the, the most important advantage. That's the one that I exploit the most in my work. I try to find a balance between communicating the data, so its, it's role as science communication, but also as providing some kind of artistic experience, something uh, emotional that connects people with the data. Music is an amazing tool for that because our brains are they're just ready and primed for our emotions to be triggered by, by certain combinations of sound. Music is a very personal thing for people. You, know, you often listen alone and, and you experience things that you can't really explain to other people. Um, but at the same time, there's a cultural aspect and 
there's there's a wide variety of, of musical traditions from all over the world. And so music has always been used to bring people together and and synchronize them uh, literally and and metaphorically. And so that that's kind of like giving the sonifier a enormous palette. It ha- it has the potential to be very personally affecting and also the potential to to bring people together and give them a, a collective experience of something. And how have people responded to your sonifications? The most amazing response that we've ever gotten for our sonifications is uh, from one of our collaborators. So we work with Christine Malik, who is a blind musician and uh, astronomy nut and advocate for for the blind community. And in a recent interview, she said that listening to the image sonifications we do, so that's where we take an image of deep space, for example, and convert it into sound. She said it gives her the experience that she imagines sighted people have when they look up at the night sky. It's something she's heard people explain to her, but she's had no access to to looking up at the night sky. And so to hear her say that the sonifications give her that feeling, um, there's there's no way to, to top that response, really. Spoken Web Podcast is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found at universities across Canada. Our producer this month is Chelsea Mia, a postdoctoral fellow with the University of Alberta Spoken Web team. Our supervising producer is me, Kate Moffat. Our sound designer and audio engineer is Miranda Eastwood. And our production manager and transcriptionist is Kelly Cubbin. We'd like to give special thanks to master drummer Peter Olaliken Adedokun, whose music you hear in the first half of the episode. Original music and performance clips were also provided by Juana Avasilikoy and by Matt Russo and his team at System Sounds. Thank you as well to Sean Lauk, who co-produced the first Drum Codes episode and played a significant role in conceptualizing this follow-up. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit SpokenWeb.ca and subscribe to the Spoken Web podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. If you love us, let us know. Rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. Stay tuned to your podcast feed later this month for Shortcuts with Catherine McLeod, mini stories about how literature sounds.